Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 376, Letters of Blood. Okay, we were on the 24th of February, 1641. Compromises in the air. We appear to be moving towards a settlement, led by Bedford and his clients Pym, St. John and Hamden. It was based on freeing victims of the personal rule, ending prerogative taxes, the removal and replacement of those evil councillors, regular parliaments held by law, rolling back those Laudian reforms, and in return, subsidies would be provided at a reasonable level for the king. And then the Scots had lobbed their grenade, demanding abolition of the episcopy, and the atmosphere had turned distinctly chilly. For Charles, bishops were non-negotiable, and for many MPs it was the same. And Charles saw a way out here. He saw a way to split the reformers and bring moderate and royalist MPs to his side, prevent any further concessions and regain the initiative. The junto was now divided between the religious radicals and Scots on the one hand and the moderate Bedford faction on the other, but neither of them could afford to lose Scottish support. But the Scots' declaration on the 24th of February had without doubt changed the dynamic between them. And now... The Junto couldn't be confident that Parliament would be on the Scots side as a whole. And in pursuit of a settlement, the moderate Bedford himself would dearly love to lose them because they now stood in the way of an amicable conclusion. But still, they held the stick, the army in the north. So now everything came to the trial of Strafford. Could a solution be found that saved Charles's honour and determination to protect the life of his servant? And yet, in short, Strafford could never again help Charles impose arbitrary rule. And therefore, 
help the settlement come home. Now, there was clearly a problem. Charles's expectations of the 25th of February were far more optimistic than they should have been. He had consistently refused the Junto's request and ignored Strafford's willingness for Strafford to resign. He believed firmly, even religiously, that he'd made plenty of concessions, that was enough. Strafford was in no way guilty of treason, and the King's Majesty dictated that his servant was off-limits and that should have been enough for any loyal subject. And anyway, in the horrible event that Strafford did fall for some reason, he could always just use a royal pardon and save his life. The pattern here is not that Charles is incapable of making concessions, but that, in the words of Lord Brooke, he had to be dragged to the point of the necessity of granting. He had a fatal tendency to give too little until it was just too late to save the situation. And for the Scots, there was no possible peace with Strafford alive. He must die. For the Irish, actually, a delegation the previous November, composed of lords from all the communities, Gaelic lords, Old English and New English, had brought a remonstrance against Strafford, demanding his removal. There was not a hint, by the way, from the Irish delegation of any idea of separatism or a trouble on the way. For the Warwick Brook group in the Junto, Strafford was a danger and must be convicted and executed. Bedford, Pym and Hamden were hoping for a softer conclusion, conviction, possibly followed by imprisonment or even pardon. I'm reminded for some reason of the line, crucifixion? Good. Out of the door, line on the left, one cross each. A Monty P line is never far away. Anyway, Bedford's group were looking to bring their settlement home despite the Scottish grenade. So, to Strafford then, 24th of February, he had been granted the leave of an extra week to prepare his initial response to the accusations made against him in the impeachment. The Lords all assembled to wait for the defendant to hear the charges against Strafford and his answers to them. None of them were decked out in their robes of state. They wouldn't be needed for a session like this. They were only needed at events attended by the monarch, and presumably Charles wasn't going to be there. So, horror! Alarm when Charles himself appeared with the Lord Keeper at his side. He was also not wearing his robes, actually, which was almost irregular. Had he come on impulse, I wonder? Decided to drop in? Anyway, Strafford was duly called and duly appeared in the House of Lords to hear all the accusations, all 28 of them. As Bedford, Say and Seal and his party on the Lords heard Strafford's response, their hearts must have sunk. The man was brilliant, answering each accusation in turn with both razor-sharp legal knowledge and wit. If any of them had been looking forward to a triumphant trial, they looked forward no longer. No doubt the news got back quickly to the man inked in to lead Strafford's prosecution, John Pym. Also, there was the matter of how the king behaved in this pre-session as far as Charles was concerned, saving Strafford, as I've said, was no matter of simple politics or power or constitution. None of those tawdry baubles figured so highly as the matter of his honour. Strafford was his man, an extension of his dignity. To strike at Strafford was to strike at Charles. His very soul and conscience were at stake here. Apparently he still believed that his royal majesty was such that he now simply had to make his will clear to his loyal subjects in the Lords and his faithful servant would be saved. 
So he made his view very clear as he sat watching. When Strafford came in, for example, he took his hat off as a mark of respect. After Strafford's masterly rebuttal of the accusations, he said approvingly, he had done him no wrong for aught he knew, and now he had spoken all truth so far as concerned him. Again, this to Charles's mind should have sorted it. After all, Strafford stood accused of treason, and treason was an offence against the king, and the king saw no treason. And he had a point, but he'd misjudged his opponents. But he hadn't misjudged the quality of his servant, Strafford. So the trial proper was due to open a month later on the 22nd of March. Until that time, the Bedford faction within the Junto, Bedford, Pym and Lord Say, not Seal this time because Seal had fallen out with his twin, tried to persuade Charles that he must compromise, get Strafford sent down and get him resigned, and then an agreement could be made. But Charles would do no such thing. Strafford had shown the weakness of the case against him in the session with the Lords. Charles wouldn't allow himself to be pushed around and humiliated. He would call the Junto's bluff now. Their threadbare case would fail, and Charles would once more be supreme. During this time, interestingly, Strafford received a letter from a young lawyer called John Cook. Cook was not a supporter of the king, nor his attempt to rule without Parliament. It would in fact be John Cook who stood forward, as his senior bolstrode Whitelock would not, and prepare the case against the king in 1649. But John Cook was an honest man. John Cook knew that the charges against Strafford were stretching the law, and so he advised Strafford as such, gave him his advice. He'd suffer for his integrity. He was named as a Straffordian by the angry mob outside, and he suffered a period of poor business as a result. But then, as Mark mentioned a while back, for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? So look, John Adamson, the historian, made the very astute comment that all justice is theatre, from the meanest petty court to the county assizes to the greatest court in the land at Westminster Hall. It is the demonstration of royal and national sovereignty and power, the great gift of justice handed down, and the awesome power and jeopardy of justice too. I don't want to start declaiming and all. I can feel myself getting just a little flushed. But from the earliest tax and law codes, Justice has been the face of the power of the king and his government to the people. And so it was to be for Strafford. Normally an impeachment trial would take place in front of the Lords in the White Chamber, the House of Lords, out of sight of the public. But Black Tom Tyrant Strafford, he was far too important for that sort of thing. This needed to be public. This needed to be seen by as many people as possible, witnessed as the community of the realm together bringing down a tyrant that had broken his contract of trust and betrayed his king and the people he was supposed to protect on behalf of his king. A show trial, in short. A trial designed to be witnessed by the people and by the king and court. Early on the morning of the 22nd of March, then, a small flotilla of barges glided out from Traitor's Gate under the Tower of London. Many of those barges were full of heavily armed men as they rowed upriver to Westminster Palace and landed their prisoner at the landing stage behind Westminster Hall called Parliament Stairs. It was six o'clock in the morning on a cold spring day. Surrounded by a hundred men, Strafford 
for twas he was escorted to a small room next to Westminster Hall to wait. The setup of the court in the vast Westminster Hall was carefully planned and without precedent. There's a map, actually, and an engraving by Wenzel Holler at thehistoryofengland.co.uk. At one end of the hall was the throne, raised on a dais with a cloth of state under which the king fully expected to sit in majesty. In front of the throne were sat the judges. On one side were then sat the earls, and in front of the judges sat the barons. Off to the other side sat the clerks. Then behind the earls on one side and behind the clerks' benches on the other were built stacked benches rising high above the judges and the peers, where sat the assembled mass of the commons. Now this was unprecedented. The commons had no role whatsoever in these proceedings once they had initiated the process. But the junto was determined that this should be the full parliament all of those responsible for defending the health of the community of the realm, there to see the judgment of a traitor. And so there we are, the morning of March the 22nd. The lords, the commons, the judges and the clerks all began to assemble and noisily take their places. Fully half of the hall was left free and into that space crammed anyone who could squeeze in and anyone who was anyone tried to be there. I mean... You wouldn't want to miss this, would you? Black Tom Tyrant facing rightful justice that all three kingdoms had demanded. As a result, this was not a reverential court occasion. You might remember that we are in a time when fun entertainment was joining the crowds for a good solid execution. This was indeed theatre, and it was a theatre of blood. Robert Bailey, one of the Scottish commissioners kept a journal and he wrote of the crowd that came to gawp. A number of ladies were in, were in boxes above the rails for which they paid much money. It was daily the most glorious assembly the Isle could afford. And yet the gravity was not such as I expected. With some distaste, Bailey recorded how the peers and the commons walked and clattered around and chatted in between sessions questioning the defendant. The great British public, of course, were a disgrace, thankfully, with much public eating, not only of confections, but of flesh and bread, bottles of beer and wine going thick from mouth to mouth without cups. Superb. I mean, if you were going to be packed into a show trial for ten hours... Good idea to take a packed lunch, don't you think? And as for passing the bottles around, when I went on a coach to play football or hockey or whatever, I was told that after a can of something was passed around, when you swigged the last mouthful, you were drinking 8% saliva. Were you told that? Sorry, possibly that's broken the mood. But next, back to the trial, a bit of drama. The king arrived. The king arrived to go and sit in his rightful place at the throne, the king with his court administering justice. But no, to his horror and to his shame, Charles was not allowed to go and sit in state and majesty. Instead, he was taken to a room high in the wall behind the throne and cloth of state and made to sit behind a lattice-covered window. It seems to have been Lord Say and Seal that insisted on this, that he did not want a repeat of the fiasco of February. So the king must be put out of sight where he could not intervene. Charles was furious. 
and the first thing he did on the first day was to tear down the lattice so that he could be seen by the crowd and the judges. I mean, how symbolic is that? The king, uniquely banished from the court of his lords, sitting helplessly apart, and the brooding presence of the throne vacant under the cloth of state. A physical representation of the separation of the two bodies of the monarch, the biological body of the person stuck behind the lattice, and the symbolic body of the king as state in the form of the throne and cloth. On this concept of the separation of the two, the success of the prosecution depended. This then was the sight that greeted Strafford when he came out of his room to face the judges, sitting in a dock all the way across the hall from the throne, the public galleries just behind him, at the, the, at the away end, as it were. The sight the public saw was carefully constructed, Strafford knew that he was being tried both by the Parliament and by the Court of Public Opinion. He knew that the legend of Black Tom Tyrant had been assiduously spread by his enemies and he was determined that the people would not see the tyrant. What they would see was a loyal, hard-working public servant being harassed, victimised and pursued by a vengeful political cabal. He was therefore not dressed in his finery, but entirely in sober black, what an observer described as morning suit and long cloak, the sort of thing people wore to a funeral, funeral blacks as they were known. He was wearing his George, the medal that marked him out as a knight of the garter, but he wasn't wearing it with a grand sash as normal, but discreetly, hung from a chain. His hair was left tousled and uncombed, one of his servants was surprised a remark this was far from what he was wont to do heretofore. What people saw then was exactly what Strafford wanted them to see, a tired, beaten down, prematurely aged, loyal public servant, falsely forced to his knees. The trial managers knew from the start they were in trouble. There was a team of them, led by the barrister and MP Bolstrode Whitelock, a fine name Bolstrode Whitelock, and he's local to me actually. He was the leading figure in the Henley-on-Thames area, along with Bartholomew Hall, he would establish a tight grip on the town during the Civil Wars. You'll hear more about him. From the start, they were worried, because frankly, not but too fine a point on it, their case was threadbare. There were two big problems in essence. The first thing was that treason had been defined for centuries as an offence against the king, but demonstrably, and from the king's own mouth, Strafford had been doing the king's bidding, so the charge of treason was clearly mm, tripe. Now, as it happens, the Scots had already cleared this one up north of the border. Treason in Scotland could be against the state, not just against the king. So, in spite of English law, this was what the prosecution was trying to claim, that Strafford had broken some kind of natural law, and by so doing had committed an offence against the king as a representation of the state and people by imposing an arbitrary government on the people. The second big problem was that there wasn't really an obvious thing or occasion where this could definitively be proven. There was no smoking gun to wheel a cliché into the story. And that's why there were so many accusations, 28 of them. They wanted to batter away at their man, build a sort of cumulative treason. And in the process display Strafford to the people for the tyrant they claimed he was. Now look, it started well. Strafford looked overawed by the large legal team facing him and the sheer magnificence of the setting. 
Morris Wynne was there, and he remarked that he looked ghastly and grim and much dejected. But as the first day wore on, things began to change. Strafford realised that his enemies had nothing new to give, and he'd already answered all the 28 charges. There was little more extra. With each contention, he was able to turn them aside with wit and legal knowledge. At the end of the first day, Morris noted that he was seen to smile and went away cheerful. Accusation after accusation was met with knowledge and legal expertise, and worst of all, with humour and gentle mockery. So, for example, he was accused of using an Irish army to enforce decisions and that that therefore amounted to levying war against the king. It was a feeble accusation and Strafford was able to mock it with confidence. These must be wonderful wars. If we have no more wars than such, we shall not sleep very unquietly. His confidence, control, good humour began to win admiration from people who really, really did not want to admire him. He was given something of a helping hand by the sheer incompetence of some of the witnesses. One of the accusations was that Strafford had been heard to say that the king's little finger should be heavier on the subjects than the laws of the land. Now, to a country with such a reverence for the law, this was indeed arbitrary government. But the prosecutors had to prove that he had in fact said it, which Strafford flatly denied. Out then the prosecution wheeled Sir Thomas Leighton, the man who had claimed to have overheard it at the Assizes of 1633. When questioned in court, Leighton made no response to the question. Bit odd. So, the question was put to him again. Still no answer, at which point the problem began to become clear. Thomas Leighton was as deaf as a post. Stafford then had a lot of fun with this. How could this be evidence? How could he have heard any of Strafford's words? He couldn't even hear the prosecution shouting at him. Such was his infirmity in hearing that he must now be whooped to at the bar before he can hear. There were gusts of laughter from the galleries. By the end of two weeks of trial, not only was the case in a mess, but Strafford was winning the respect of the crowd. Here was no monster. His behaviour exceeding graceful, his speech full of weight, reason and pleasingness gushed one. The Venetian ambassador was there and he wrote home that Strafford was endeavouring by his subtle arguments to change the universal hatred against him into sympathy. The king was delighted and could not conceal his joy. The ambassador saw a prospect, which seems to be growing, that Strafford will be saved. With such a dodgy case, even if convicted, Charles could see that a royal pardon could be uncontroversial. The reformer strategy faced disaster, failure and humiliation. So in the next week, they changed the prosecuting team. There would be two. Bolstrode Whitelock was full of legal experience. Walter Earl was full of confidence, although admittedly naff all legal experience. But look, destiny is all. To Bulstrode fell their very best evidence and it was time to roll that out. It was the big gun. You might remember that Harry Vane Sr. had taken notes at that Privy Council back in May 1640 in the wake of Charles's angry dissolution of the short parliament, the one where Vane had taken notes recording that Strafford had said, 
You have an army in Ireland you may employ to reduce this kingdom. This was probably the very best evidence they had that Strafford had advised military force to subject England to tyranny. They'd avoided using it so far because if they did, well, it would be obvious to Charles and everyone else that his super-loyal Secretary of State had dobbed him in, which was embarrassing to say the least. But needs must when the future of the liberties and future of the community of the realm drives. So, onward. And Vane and Strafford had a personal rivalry going on, so Vane could presumably be relied on to stick the knife in. And so Whitelock called Harry Vane. Well, when the wheels fall off, they stay off. Twice, when asked to speak his lines, Vane stumbled and didn't answer. He seems to have had an attack of squeamishness at the last minute. Only on the third time of asking did he then sort of roll out the goods, and then he seemed to barely remember it. What a complete disaster. A few of the lords grumbled that Strafford was probably talking about Scotland, not England anyway, when he spoke of reducing the kingdom. And someone else pointed out that a single witness wasn't sufficient to convict anyway. Never was there a pair so pear-shaped. On the 7th of April, legal expertise in the form of Whitelock was replaced by overconfidence in the form of Walter Earl. Earl had a killer blow, and he knew it. He confronted Strafford with the devastating news that his commission from Charles, given in 1640, had a specific line, empowering him to suppress revolt in England. Earl stood back triumphantly and stood there to revel in the cries of triumph and watch Strafford crumble and was annihilated. Strafford retorted this was simply a standard clause in every general's commission. Go back and check the facts. Earl had absolutely no answer, didn't know what to say, stood tongue-tied, couldn't think of anything. You could hear a pin drop. Pym tried to help him out by suggesting that Earl was simply acting upon a mistake to break the embarrassing silence. If you're not good at being off the cuff, just don't do it. Because this was so obviously exactly what had happened. Earl had indeed, of course, messed up. That many of the lords just couldn't help burst out laughing. There was a hiatus in the legal exchanges because, as Morris wrote, work could not resume until the lords had done laughing and the company left off their jeering at the night. The case was in ruins, but there was one last ploy. Henry Vane Sr. had desperately told his son to go home and find those original notes, and now they had them here. So Pym boldly announced they had new damning evidence to present. But even now, Strafford had the answer. If the prosecution had new evidence, he, the defence, was surely allowed time to prepare. Over the prosecutor's horrified objections, the Lords ruled that this was indeed nothing but fair, and the hall erupted again. Shouts at the prosecution of, Withdraw! Withdraw! rang out. In the chaos, a load of spectators thought somebody was shouting, Draw! and all drew their swords. It was absolute pandemonium. The court broke up in chaos and confusion to give a week for both sides to repair amid scenes of bedlam. Again, an observer wrote down the scene. He saw that Strafford was beaming, so delighted that he could not hide his joy. In the box behind the throne, the king was seen to be laughing. Well, that all went well then. Well, 
the reformers were in trouble and make no mistake. What a mess. Their stock in Parliament sank like a stone and the tide in Parliament was turning. Evidence of that had come on the previous night of the 9th of April when the House debated whether or not to renew the cessation of war against the Scots, which had been agreed the previous year. For the reformers, as we've said, the presence of the Scottish army was critical, their only weapon to force the king to make concessions. And yet, the debate was tight. It was very tight indeed. Many members thought things had now gone far enough. It was time to stop holding their king to ransom and get the Scots out, even if it meant war and raising money for the king. The debate lasted all the way to seven o'clock that evening. The MPs forced a division and it was close. Pym won, but only by 167 votes to 128. Good Lord, the revolution hung from a thread. Enter Warwick, Brooke and Brooke's brother-in-law. Brooke's brother-in-law was the Leicestershire MP Arthur Hazelrig. Now, Arthur was a something of a dry old stick. The regicide and Republican Edmund Ludlow described him as a man of disobliging carriage, sour and morose of temper, liable to be transported with passion, and to whom liberality seemed to be a vice. Not a bundle of laughs, then, but a relentless opponent of royal tyranny, consistently refused to pay military fees to the county, he'd taken issue with Lord over ecclesiastical fees, he'd been forced to kneel before the Privy Council and had been imprisoned in the Tower by Star Chamber. But now, Arthur Hazelrig had an idea, a way out of this mess. He promised to the radical junto, the likes of Brook and Warwick, that there was another way. And the same night that the Court of Westminster Hall adjourned the 10th of April, Hazelrig introduced a bill into the Commons. It was an old tool that had been used many times to deal with rebels through the ages. It was a bill of attainder. The bill declared that Strafford be found guilty by Parliament of treason for introducing an arbitrary and tyrannical government against law, and that if the bill became an act, that he be hanged, drawn and quartered. The moderate reformers on the Junto were horrified. There were two things about the Bill of Attainder. Firstly, it relied on no evidence, just votes of the Commons and Lords about what they thought, Parliament acting as the highest court in the land. Secondly, once the King had given his assent to the Bill, he would be unable to use a royal pardon to then save him. It was brilliant. But for those like Bedford, Say and Seal and Pym trying to reach a compromise with the king, it was a disaster. They strongly disagreed on both tactical and moral grounds. For reformers like Hamden and Pym in particular, it stuck in the throat. It was just morally wrong. This was judicial murder. If Strafford could not be convicted by a court of law, he should go free. That was the law. That was the way it was. And Hamden, like many others, withdrew from the Commons when the Bill of Attainder came up for the vote. One of the few MPs who actually voted against the bill was our Yorkshire hero, Henry Slingsby. And on tactical grounds, this would make the compromise they'd be moving towards with the king much, much harder to achieve. They would have forced the most humiliating outcome onto the king. Meanwhile, there were rumours and uproar outside and inside Parliament. On the 19th of April, news reached the Commons that the officers had been ordered by the king 
to return to the English army near York. Now, why would he do that? Rumours circulated of the dangers of an imminent royal coup against Parliament. The army would march south. Meanwhile, in London, there was a groundswell of support for the prosecution of Strafford and the fear now that he would escape punishment by the court. A petition had been raised calling for Strafford's death. Charles had ordered the Royalist Mayor of London, Richard Gurney, to suppress it, but still thousands of names had been taken. There may have been as many as 30,000 of them, a huge number. And now crowds poured into Westminster outside Parliament, maybe 10,000 of them, not only to present the petition, but to block any royal troops they feared would come to dissolve Parliament, to put their bodies between the King and Parliament. Inside Westminster, it must have been terrifying. There can be no doubt that the people were now thoroughly engaged in politics, if you had any doubts. At Westminster Hall, the trial resumed. The papers proved nothing new, and the same doubts remained. As the case came to summing up, Pym made a long, rambling speech that even his friends thought was an utter disaster. And then Strafford came to his last address, and he played the crowd like a fiddle. At one stage, he broke down and wept when he spoke of his children and his dead wife. Once more, he'd stolen the show. When he'd recovered, he mocked the very basis of the argument. Since none of the 28 accusations were treason, how could they all together be somehow treason? But he also appeared to order tradition and custom. He claimed that it was he, not Pym, that was defending the Commonwealth which is a continuing and powerful royal theme. The happiness of the kingdom consists in the just poise of the king's prerogative and the subject's liberty, and things would never be well until they go hand in hand together. For Pym and the reformers, though, this was exactly the point that Strafford had sought to destroy that balance if the prerogative of the king overwhelm the liberty of the people, it will be turned into tyranny, responded Pym. The outcome of the trial could not have looked more uncertain. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. But it was not to matter. Hazelrig was to have the last word. On the evening of the 19th of April, the Bill of Attainder passed the Commons by a massive margin, 204 votes to 59. But look at those numbers. Look at how many stayed away. Behind the scenes, Bedford and Pym desperately tried to reach accommodation with the King, even at this last moment. They offered that Strafford would suffer exile but not death. Bedford tried to win the more radical members of the Junto over to his side. He targeted the Earl of Essex. At Bedford's request, Edward Hyde approached Essex, asking him to support this new compromise. But Essex was unmoved. He coldly answered, Stone dead hath no fellow. Strafford must die for the reform to succeed and for it to be safe from retribution. 
and Bedford, meanwhile, was struggling to concentrate. He was clearly ill. His daughter found spots on his body, and though the physician told him there was nothing to worry about, Bedford was clearly very ill. And Charles was determined to stand his ground. So, on the 23rd of April, he wrote to his friend and faithful servant in the Tower. He was beginning to accept that Strafford's political career must be over. But he wrote to reassure him. The misfortune that has fallen upon you by the strange mistaking and conjecture of these times, being such that I must lay by the thought of employing you hereafter in my affairs. Yet I cannot satisfy myself in honour or conscience without assuring you that upon the word of a king you shall not suffer in life, honour or fortune. Maybe Charles was just being stubborn, but maybe he understood he still had a chance to save Strafford, that the decision was not yet home and dry, despite the vote in the Commons. Because as the Bill of Attainder went to the Lords, everything was still unclear. Strafford had stolen the show at the trial. The Lords had begun to show frank disbelief of the evidence and the prosecution had been utterly feeble. The Reformers feared now that they'd lost support of the Lords and that they'd vote against the Bill of Attainder as well. The whole programme was in jeopardy. Historian Jonathan Healy in The Blazing World describes beautifully what happens next. On the 29th of April, there was a conference of both houses about the Attainder. The King was there. Strafford was there. The young Prince of Charles, just 11 years old, stood looking on too. What an impression this must have made. And now Pym pushed Oliver St. John into the limelight one more time. Was he the man to turn this around and convince the Lords to proceed with the attainder, despite the disaster of the trial? But St. John was a client of Bedford. Would instead he reach for some sort of compromise or fail to convince that the worst must be done? But St. John reached not for compromise, but the throat Strafford had subverted the laws of the realm. He had committed treason against the body politic, the king's body politic. He appealed to the Lord's social conservatism. My lords, take away law, and there is no peerage, but every swain is equal. He deployed legal argument. They should never doubt this was the right and fair process, and he used the arguments of a medieval judge that treason should be tried in Parliament, not in any other court of law and he appealed to their practical common sense. It was never accounted either cruelty or foul play to knock foxes and wolves on the head, because they are beasts of prey. Oliver St. John had understood and played to his audience beautifully. Finally, Strafford had found an opponent worthy of the name, and in front of Charles's horrified eyes and that of his son, the lords thundered with applause. A German onlooker remarked, the whole scene seemed changed. The revolution was back on. And yet, Charles was made of stern, stubborn stuff. He was not prepared to accept defeat yet. On the 1st of May, he called a conference in the Lords and he summoned the Commons all to attend. This was the time to bring down the full power, authority and majesty of the divine monarch and stop this. Everyone crowded into the hall as he spoke from the throne with all the trappings of majesty around him. At last, he recognised the gravity of the situation and conceded, finally, that Strafford could no longer serve 
not so much as to be high constable. But then he went on. Strafford's life must be saved. And he warned that he would not disband the Irish army and he would not disband the English army. Now this was shocking because this was simply a threat. This was a king still thinking, after all that had passed, still thinking in terms of military confrontation with his own subjects. There was silence. Although the king waited, no one applauded as they should. There were no nodding heads, no murmurs of agreement, just a shocked silence. There didn't seem much else to do, so the king turned, gathered his servants and left. Now, it just so happens that there was a further reason why Charles was being so intransigent. There was a plan B. In addition to his absolute conviction that his honour could not allow his loyal servant to be executed, Charles was beginning to see other options. He heard whispers from Scotland that the peers around Montrose were angry at the dominance of Argyll, and they were looking for a way out. And so as early as April, Charles decided he'd go to Scotland, he'd go to try and exploit this opportunity and this split, and scotch the revolution at its source. Pun, I am happy to say, intended. And in England, there was indeed a plot. And as people had feared, it was to use the army to stage a coup against the reformers. The army was hacked off for lack of pay, and they blamed Parliament, not Charles. Henry Percy, brother of the Earl of Northumberland, took an idea to the Queen. Another plan came from the moderate Henry German, who was a courtier again to the Queen, in cahoots with the loyalist John Suckling. You might remember him as the swashbuckling cavalier whose men had looked so grand in the First Bishop's War. And they were joined by other royalists like George Goring. They had a plan. They would seize the tower and help Strafford escape. Now it may have been that Charles countermanded one of these plots, but he seems to have leaked the news about them to the junto nonetheless. Maybe playing politics to put pressure on them to back down on Strafford. Either way, the plans for a coup were a hideous mistake. And meanwhile, the thoroughly cavalier poet John Suckling and his mate Captain Billingsley set about recruiting some conspirators anyway, with or without the King's approval. On the 1st of May, Charles made one of those howlers I talked about. He absolutely embroiled himself in this army plot. He ordered Suckling and Billingsley to go to the tower with a hundred men and he gave them a letter demanding admission. The warden William Balfour refused point blank. The news, the rumour, shot around Parliament and London and then, almost unbelievably, the whole tableau stopped. <laughs> Freeze-framed. The rumours and the politicking and the petitioning and the revolution. Oh, why did it stop? Well, of course it did. There was a royal wedding. And who can lead a rebellion when the bells are ringing, young people are in love, the bunting's on the street. Oh, doesn't she look lovely? Oh, he's so handsome. Well, I say young people in love. The Princess Mary was nine and William of Orange just 14. So let's go for young then. Love can follow. They would have a son, actually, called William, and he'd be back. So, there we were, a fleet of 16 coaches grinding their way along the Strand to Whitehall. Celebration was in the air, crowds were everywhere, bells rang. Yay, the monarchy, yay! 
mean, it's extraordinary. You couldn't see Robespierre bothering with this sort of thing, could you? We're supposed to be revolting. And the following day, the bunting was put away, and it was. Back to revolting. Crowds gathered around the tower, a thousand strong. Because while the celebrations had been going on the previous day, Suckling had gathered 60 of his swashbucklers at the White Horse Tavern on Bread Street in the city. News spread that they were there. The plan of an attempt to free Strafford was whispered around. And when Suckling viewed the scene outside the tower before going in with his men, he saw a thousand angry Londoners standing between him and the gatehouse. Suckling wisely retreated back into the dark streets of London and melted away. The following day, Parliament was besieged. In a clap, all the city in alarm, Shops closed. A world of people in arms run down to Westminster, reported Robert Bailey breathlessly. The Puritan woodturner in East Cheap, Nehemiah Wallington, kept a diary which gives a great insight into the beliefs of a Puritan artisan at the time, and he was down with the crowd. The chaos was absolute. Normal life had stopped. As he took part in all the events, Nehemiah saw around him that trading was so decayed thereby that they could scarce get bread to maintain their families. The crowd's blood was up. They smelled a cop-out, that the king and some traitorous MPs and the lords would let Strafford escape justice. The crowd posted bills, names of MPs who had voted against the tainder under the title Enemies of Justice. A terrified bishop told of how people were talking of lynching Strafford or even lynching the king. Inside Westminster, Isaac Pennington drew Pym aside and told him about the attempt by Billingsley and Suckling on the tower. Pym stood before Commons and revealed all he knew of the various plots. Typically of Pym, of course, he blamed Catholics. There was a papist plot to bring down the kingdom. But all over London now, there was an atmosphere of panic. There were rumours everywhere. To add to Pym's rumour of an imminent papist insurrection, there was a scare that an army was on the way from Ireland, that the army in the north was about to declare for Strafford and come south, even that French troops were mobilising. In the atmosphere of imminent disaster, defeat, dissolution, to the sounds of the cries of justice and execution from the crowds outside, Henry Martin spoke to the House. Henry Martin called on an Elizabethan precedent established by William Cecil at another time of national crisis, of an oath and a bond of association to bring the MP, Lords and community together to defend the nation. A document was duly drafted called the Protestation to be subscribed by all in Parliament and anyone in the country who wished to. It was a vow to defend the true reformed Protestant religion expressed in the doctrine of the church in England, to defend the king's person and the powers and privileges of Parliament. The fear of dissolution was so fierce, so real, that the protestation was planned on the basis of establishing a provisional government if the king dissolved Parliament. By the end of the 3rd of May, all the MPs and Protestant peers of the Lords had taken the oath. As a further protection, the Commons voted a new bill preventing the dissolution of Parliament without its own consent. When Parliament reconvened on the 4th, it was time for the Lords to vote on the Bill of Attainder. 
For three days they debated, while outside the crowd bayed. And then news arrived. Deliverance. The Earl of Essex had taken control of the tower, taken it into his hands, and the army plotters had fled. Percy, German, Suckling had all left and escaped to France. The Earl of Stamford in the Lords stood and addressed the house, expressing both the relief everyone felt, but also just how scared they'd all really been. Give God thanks for our great deliverance, which is greater than that from the gunpowder treason. For by time, had not this plot been discovered, the powder had been about our ears here in Parliament House, and we had all been made slaves. The Lords began to act rather like an executive, more than an advisory and legislative body. They appointed commissioners to take control of the trained bands in the city and take control of the fleet at Portsmouth. They set the rules of the debate then about Strafford. This was to be a matter of conscience and belief, not of evidence. So how a Lord felt about Strafford was what counted when they voted. The Catholic peers were no longer there because they could not take the protestation oath. The bishops had been expelled from voting by a Lord's motion. Bedford, though, was not there. The physicians had been wrong. He had smallpox and was like to die. The only delay now to a vote was that they objected to the sense of being forced into a decision by the baying crowd outside. In Whitehall, Charles could see his world disintegrating around him. The army plotters had fled. Henrietta Maria was in a complete panic, terrified at the talk of a Catholic plot, being the most ostentatiously visible Catholic in the country who had boldly and openly celebrated her faith. At one point, she was determined to save her life and flee to France. Only the French ambassador was able to talk her down, and then only because he was sure her coach would be stopped on the way and she would be captured. Sometime at this point, according to Edward Hyde writing later, Charles received a letter from Strafford in the Tower. The letter thanked the King for his favours and for his support, and then bravely released him from his vow to save his life. Sir, to you I can give up life of this world with all the cheerfulness imaginable. On the 8th of May, the Lords finally reached the last debate and the division. The vote was 26 to 19, a mere 45 votes from a possible total of 120 peers. The decision was execution. Strafford was condemned. On Saturday, a parliamentary delegation took the Bill of Attainder and the Bill Preventing Dissolution Without Consent to Whitehall and the King for him to sign. Bedford probably didn't know, because by the following day he was dead taken by smallpox. So, Charles sat in Whitehall, surrounded by the debris and ruins of his hopes, and contemplated his honour and the promises that he had made to Strafford that he would save him. I doubt it made much difference to his tender conscience that the brave Strafford had released him from his oath. He consulted five bishops on this moral dilemma and what he should do, and received advice that was unhelpfully conflicting, to be frank. Outside, the crowd periodically chanted, and people fancied they heard rebel drums and trumpets and panicked. London was in a fever. Not only was Charles in a dreadful position as regards the conscience that was so important to him, he also feared for the lives of his wife and family, and that a wrong decision would light a fire that would consume both them and his kingdom. 
He called the Privy Council to him on the Sunday and when they arrived they found him in tears. They presented him with the hard, cold truth that really he shouldn't be worrying because he had no choice. They actually proposed that they sign for him on his behalf so that he could at least say he'd not actually signed the bill and say, save his conscience thereby, but Charles was way too honest for that. He signed the Bill of Attainder. He signed the Bill Against Dissolving Parliament Without Its Own Consent and both became acts. Bulstrode Whitelock was present when Secretary Carlton took the news to Strafford in the Tower. It seems that despite his letter, Strafford was actually still in denial. A few days before, he thought he'd managed to bribe his jailer to let him escape for the princely sum of £22,000, but that fell through. As Bulstrode relates, Strafford seriously asked the secretary whether His Majesty had passed the bill or not, as not believing without some astonishment that the king would have done it. And being again assured that it was passed, he rose from his chair, lift his eyes to heaven, laid his hand on his heart and said, Put not your trust in princes, nor the sons of men, for in them there is no salvation. Psalm 146, I believe, the KJV has a handy phrase for every occasion. As soon as the signed bill was received, the sound of hammering could be heard on Tower Hill. Erecting a scaffold, the king had at least managed to change the punishment from the old medieval horror into a simple beheading. They were also erecting a sea of stands all around the scaffold. There's an engraving by Holler again, showing the scene outside the tower, rammed with people when Strafford's time came two days later. People had been queuing since two o'clock in the morning to get a good view. The Venetian ambassador estimated 200,000 people. Without doubt a wild exaggeration, but it gives an idea that the place was heaving. Everyone on the stands would have paid to be there, Executing tyrants is a nice little earner. It took an agonising age until Strafford was allowed to go to the scaffold from the tower that morning. As you'd expect, he met death with courage. He refused a coach. He elected to walk instead through the crowds with members of his household. As he left the tower, it said he passed through the gatehouse in which his old friend Lord was imprisoned. Lord reached his hands through the bars to bless him and was so overwhelmed that he fainted. A few days later, Lord's jailer heard his bitter complaint that Strafford had fallen because he'd served a king who knew not how to be or be made great. When he ascended the scaffold and faced the vast, noisy crowd, Strafford may well have been just feet away from some of those who had brought him down, Warwick, Essex in particular. His speech was in the main conventional, professing his loyalty to the king, offering his forgiveness to all. But he had one sting to offer. I wish every man would lay his hand on his heart and consider seriously whether the beginnings of the people's happiness should be written in letters of blood. And then probably looking the parliamentary delegation straight in the eye. I fear they are in a wrong way. I desire, almighty God, that no one drop of my blood rise up in judgment against them. The crowd waited for half an hour while Strafford prayed with his chaplain, 
and at last he was done. He summoned the executioner, offered him his forgiveness, removed his doublet, put on a white cap to trap his hair, and knelt. Then he lay, looked at the block, laid his neck on the gap to receive it. After a few moments of prayer, he stretched out his hands, the axe fell, and severed his head in one blow, and Strafford was gone. The executioner held up the head and cried, God save the king! No one heard him because London was filled with the jubilant roar of the bloodthirsty crowd. Well, there it is. Something of a monster episode. But it is quite a story, isn't it? Sorry about the gag earlier about there being both a Lord Say and a Lord Seal. Someone put a comment on the Facebook asking for clarification, which made me chuckle. Do look at the pictures I mentioned on the website, thehistoryofengland.co.uk. In a couple of weeks, we're back to see how England reacts to the killing of the king's servant against his express will. Meanwhile, thank you very much for listening. Thank you all for your comments. I do love hearing from you. Good luck and have a great week. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.